Good evening, everybody. First Kings chapter four, we pick up where we left off. The life and reign of King Solomon. Here we go, we're going to <laughs> have a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we are excited in our hearts because uh, the word of God is from heaven and it didn't originate in any man or here on earth, but is the God-breathed word sent to save us, to heal our hearts, and to give us uh, life. And so, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help our understanding to be open, that we'd be receptive, to hear that voice, that life-giving transformative voice with such power uh, to speak to our hearts and to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how about if I ask you to be honest in a moment of vulnerability, all right? Show of hands for, uh, if you could say this statement, organization is not one of my stronger suits. Come on, everybody else, we'll wait for you, all right. Wow, <laughs> quite a few. Let's do a wave, ready, starting over here, just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, um, in a world that's fallen, in a world that's fallen, uh, chaos and disorder really is uh, quite natural. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, it says even uh, the creation itself has experienced kind of an unraveling of sorts and that creation, relationships, harmonies and marriages, uh, our own hearts and our thoughts are, are out of control. And so really, uh, in order to become organized, it takes a little bit of work. Uh, in fact, there's a spiritual gift, or I could say there's a spiritual app for that. All right, First, <laughs> first Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 28, calls it the gift of administration. Um, interesting, the King James Version calls it the gift of government. Uh, because the word kubernesis in the Greek uh, really means to steer or to rule or to govern, and it's really used of seagoing vessels to, to steer the ship. Uh, in fact, uh, the gift of administration, one writer put it, uh, is the God-given ability to give direction and make decisions on behalf of others that result in efficient operation and accomplishment of goals. Uh, administration includes the ability to organize people, things, information, finances. Uh, often the mark of an administrator is the ability to accomplish things in fitting and an orderly way. Uh, really, to organize our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our words, in God's way is a make it or break it quality. Not only in corporations or in kingdoms or in churches, but in our own lives themselves. And so last time in chapter three, uh, we saw this famous dream that Solomon had. And really that was uh, his big request was all about wisdom and 
uh, how to administrate understanding and knowledge and to organize things the way God would have uh, they, them be organized. So uh, back at chapter three, uh, God has granted his request to have wisdom. You remember, the Lord asked them that, that crazy question. If, uh, if you can have anything from me, what would you have? And he thought about it, and he said back in his dream that I would have wisdom because your people are so many, and they're great. They're the Lord's people. And I feel just like a child inside. I don't feel equipped to do your will. And so we saw a request, a prayer, that God will always answer is when we ask according to his will that we might become the person God intended us to be. Uh, to pray for the ability to do his will. That's a kind of prayer that he will always answer. And so God is going to grant him this phenomenal wisdom. And uh, in chapter 3, we see the wisdom being shown in Solomon's ability to administer uh, justice. We had that uh, very unique scene with the two moms who, who claimed that uh, one baby belonged to uh, both of them. And so uh, he had a wonderful, wise way of uh, flushing out the true mother. Uh, then we saw, we will see in chapters five through seven, wisdom playing out in the matter of building and construction. We'll see in chapter eight, wisdom in worship and the things of the Lord. And then in chapters 9 and 10, we'll see how this wisdom that God gave Solomon is shown uh, through business sense and commerce. But nicely fit right here into chapter 4 is wisdom for administration, uh, the practical organization that he needs to govern God's people. And so we're going to take a look at that tonight. Um, let's listen for the spirit because, as I said, the ability to organize one's life according to the pattern and will of God will make you either successful or a failure. Because can you imagine organizing your, your life counter to the agenda and the will and the plan of God Almighty? who put everything into, uh, called everything into existence. So let's listen for the, the voice of the Lord here in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We'll begin. Now, uh, so King Solomon ruled over all Israel, and there were his chief officials, Azariah, son of Zadok, the priest, Elioreph, and Ahijah, sons of Shisha, Secretaries, Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, recorder, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, commander-in-chief, Zadok and Abiathar, priests, Azariah, son of Nathan, in charge of the district officers, Zabad, son of Nathan, a priest and personal advisor to the king, Ahishar, in charge of the palace, Adoniram, son of Abda, in charge of forced labor. Phew, I got through those names. It's not easy. All right, I needed the, there must be an app for that as well. <laughs> Biblical names. Okay, verses one through six, let's pause there. And getting organized, point one would be Solomon's executive administrators. Now, God was building something to last. So he, he's gonna do it right. Uh, Israel is going to be a nation and a kingdom without end. 
in 900 years from this point, God the Son will enter this world to redeem the earth and all of the world uh, by coming through this nation, uh, born of a Jewish woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, the God-man. So um, it's, it's important that Israel and the kingdom be organized. So if you want something to last, to be strong and to be healthy, productive and effective, it must be well-ordered, well-founded, and well-organized according to God's word and God's will. So first, we see the discipline of delegation. So here's another hard one for all of us. Uh, It is something that Moses learned uh, the hard way, uh, leading the multitude of the Jews there in the desert. You recall in Exodus chapter 18, at first, Moses' philosophy was uh, much like we find in the world today. Fill in the blank. All right, ready? If you want something done right, you've got to... Do it Seriously? That's not biblical. All right. <laughs> now, uh, Moses was doing that. You know, I set you up for that. Sorry. All right. If, if you want the biblical principle, if you want something done right, delegate wisely. And that's what Moses began to do. Uh, Moses' father-in-law spoke to Moses. What are you doing? It's not good. You're going to kill yourself doing this. You and these people who come to you, uh, are, you're going to wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen to me. I'll give you some advice. Uh, you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform, but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Getting very organized already, uh, even in Exodus chapter 18. And he goes on, and Moses takes uh, this advice Uh, The death of some churches and families and companies uh, is the failure to delegate for everybody to have a part to play, a role. Um, Even in heaven, there's roles and there's delegation. I mean, God doesn't even do everything by himself. He asks angels to do things. And he gives, uh, even in the Trinity, there's submission and authority. And uh, it's just an amazing thing. In the Old Testament, so uh, the wisdom is saying this, that in God's work, first of all, you have a leader for direction and oversight, right, and vision. Uh, But then you have capable men and associates for support and help carrying that out. Uh, Now, it's the same in the New Testament, All right, we have pastors and elders and deacons that work alongside one another, uh, each member of the body doing its part. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 put it this way. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. There's just order. There's qualifications for those offices. And uh, uh, a lot of people, even in these times, uh, don't 
uh, appreciate order. They, they, they want to just kind of come in and do your own thing. And uh, that's kind of the spiritual thing right now. But the spiritual thing, according to the Bible, is order and uh, decency and fitting uh, structures and routines because God is, is very much like that. Uh, so Solomon was a leader of leaders. He understands this and we're gonna see him shaping his executive uh, cabinet, if you will. Uh, and so a cabinet really is the, the head of the executive departments. In the United States, we have 15 department heads like that, like the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and all of that. There's 15 now in Israel, ancient Israel, there will have been eight. Now, he's, he's a good leader. He understands uh, that, first of all, He's, he's thinking, I need help. It's good for me. Number two, God gives people gifts and abilities. It's good for them. Good for other people to be doing what God has uh, designed them to do. And number three, it's good for the assembly. It's good for everybody. It's good for Israel. Uh, so Solomon's wisdom gives him the ability to see the need, to discern the necessary positions and delegate uh, the right person for the right task to train and equip them uh, in the right way. So Israel is going to become like a well-oiled machine. And during these years, these 40 years that Solomon reigns, it's called the golden age of Israel because uh, Israel is at peace and in, in great prosperity. And uh, most commentators believe that it's because of the organized way that Solomon is putting into practice God's standards and precepts. And so uh, it's, it's good to pay attention. So there are eight positions right here in, in your text. These eight areas, number one in verse two, would be priests. And priests always had kind of a dominant place uh, because they uh, kind of stood in the gap between God and man. And so they led in matters of worship. Uh, secondly, it lists secretaries. Now, these secretaries did more than keep records, but they did keep records. They were kind of historians, but they were kind of like our secretary of state. And so they really prepared correspondence, especially with foreign uh, affairs. And uh, in verse three, you have the word recorder. Now, the recorders were like the king's press secretary. Uh, they gave official notices, and they also reported public needs to the king, and uh, in turn, the king were the king's uh, spokespeople. And so in verse four, you have the commander-in-chief, the Department of Defense, of course, Benaiah. He was the captain of uh, Solomon's dad's bodyguard, you'll remember. And so in verse five, you have a son of Nathan. Nobody knows if this is the Nathan the prophet or not. Um, so someone in charge of the 12 governors, which we're gonna see in, in verses seven through 19, we'd call him a superintendent maybe. Uh, verse five B, another one of Nathan's boys, a personal advisor. Now, interestingly, in the Hebrew, it's called a friend of the king. And uh, just interesting, it's a sounding board, they're at a, a position in the administration called the friend of the king. So the king had somebody who was appointed who was like a sounding board but was a friend, who was loyal uh, to the interests of the king, had the king's best interest at heart. And so, you know, just a wonderful uh, picture there. Also, um, 
verse 6, you have master of the palace or steward. Verse, uh, so ran everything in the palace, right? And then last but not least, you have Adoniram, who is the overseer of forced labor. Now, this guy is not going to be very popular. He's the one who's in charge of um, conscripting men. Like they, Solomon instituted the draft. So in order to build the palace and the temple, he's going to, you're going to get a number in the mail. And when your number comes up, uh, you're going to have to serve. And so, you know, remember Samuel told the people, who said, listen, we're the only nation that doesn't have a king. All right, everybody else has a king. We want a king. We want a handsome, charismatic, rich, wealthy. We, we want to wave to, we want to see somebody in a carriage doing this like everybody else, all right? And so Samuel said, you don't know what you're asking. You've got the Lord for your king. What do you want what the world wants for or has? And uh, he says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he says, uh, this king is going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to draft them into service. Uh, you're not going to be seeing much of your kids, you know? You're going to be paying taxes and all of this, and this was part of that. Now, of course, they used foreigners for some of that heavy uh, um, labor, but the Israelites also had to uh, enter the draft in that regard. And so uh, this is one of the reasons that the 10 northern tribes uh, split, uh, because they're unhappy with the work that they have to do. Now, uh, so important areas of the kingdom living were covered uh, by the right people, the right people doing the right job, doing it in the right way. So now we've got the executive administration covered, all right? I know this is exciting. I can see it on your faces. (laughs) Verses 7 through 19. Solomon had 12 district governors, okay? So we're going to go from the executive administration to 12 governors. And I I believe we have a map about this, so we do, we'll show it in a minute. Solomon also had 12 district governors over all Israel who supplied provisions for the king and the royal household. Each one had to provide supplies for one month in the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur, not the Hollywood Ben-Hur. All right, just so you know. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makaz, Shabim, Beth Shemesh, not Jim's wife. <laughs> Jim Shemesh, it's funny. His, he has a wife named Beth, and that would be Beth Shemesh right there, but that's not her. All right. And Elon Beth Hanan. Ben has said in Araboth, Soko and all the land of Hefer were his. So we're just pairing up people with the 12 districts, okay? Ben Abinadab in Nafor Dor, he was married to Tepheth, daughter of Solomon. Bana, son of Ahilud, in Tanakh and Megiddo, and in all of Bethshan, next to Zerathon, below Jezreel, from Bethshan to Abel-Mahola, across to Jokmiam. Wow. <laughs> I don't want to live there. Ben-Geber, 
in Ramoth Gilead. The settlements of Jair, son of Manasseh in Gilead were his, as well as the district of Argob in Bashan and its 60 large walled cities with bronze gate bars. Verse 14, Ahinadab, son of Edo in Mahanaim, Ahimaz in Naphtali, he had married Basemath. Well, that's not a very romantic name for a girl. <laughs> Do you, base math, take uh, calculus to be your husband? <laughs> Never mind. All right. It was either base math, do you take uh, calculus, or do you take trig a nometry? <laughs> All right. I think I went with the right one. Base math, daughter of Solomon, Bana, son of Hushai, and Asher, and Aloth, Jehoshaphat, son of Parua in Issachar, Shimei, son of Eliin, uh, Benjamin, Geber, son of, dear Lord Jesus, help me, <laughs> Uri, in Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor over the district. Praise the Lord. That's over with. <laughs> All right, Solomon's exit. His Calvary Chapel, I'm kind of stuck. We got to go through the whole thing. Amen? That's the way it is. I could have just, just said, you know, there are 12 guys in 12 places. Let's go forward. All right, so number two, we've seen Solomon's exec uh, admin guys, and now Solomon's 12 governors. Now the map is going to go up there. This is Solomon's attempt to... Uh, make Israel more manageable. Now you'll remember that the 10 northern tribes that you see there, Judah is called Judah when they're divided, and the 10 northern tribes are going to be split into uh, 12 governors. He's going to redistrictize them, all right? There's a better word for that, but that's what he's doing, all right? And so the 10 the, 12, the 10 tribes that are the northern tribes have been trouble. Uh, there's always been division, blood feuds from the beginning of the time of the beginning of Israel. The beginning of Israel, all the tribes, they're related, but they're kind of half-brothers. And there's always feuding going on from the time of the patriarchs to the time of the judges and now into the time of the monarchy. And so we've just come through a nasty civil war where the north was divided by, uh, from the south of Judah, right? So Solomon is smart. He has wisdom. So he's going to kind of decentralize them a little bit, split them up, split up the bigger states up there, and just kind of make it more of an equal opportunity there. And so uh, he breaks them up, and now there are 12 in, in the north like that. Now, uh, here's what's going on there. The 12 governors in the north are going to have to take one month a year to supply uh, the needs of the palace. And so the, instead of oppressing everybody with taxes, the way you paid taxes back in these days was to supply food for the palace, for the central government. And so each of those areas were responsible for one month out of the year to supply every need of the palace. And so, uh, in fact, 
This is what's going to, in 40 years, they're going to break apart. This is called Israel now, north and south, right? But in 40 years, they're going to split into Israel will be the, the top 10, and Judah will be the bottom, and they will be Judah and Israel, never again all Israel together. And the problem was what the reason they split will be because the the tribes in the north are tired of paying dues and taxes and providing all that food for the palace, which we're going to read about. While Judah, do you notice? Judah's free. Judah's the royal tribe. So Solomon says, hey, Judah's got a whole nother thing, but we're going to cause the northern tribes to have to chip in once a month and supply all the food. But Judah doesn't have to. So there's this big rift in 40 years, and they split, and they never come back again as whole. Uh, There's an exile for the north. That's around 722. So the north has 200 years before they're destroyed and taken away by Assyria. The southern They have about 350 years left before they'll be destroyed. The top will will split into 20 kings. You have 20 kings, they're all bad. Judah will have 20 kings, and six of them are good, but 14 of them are bad. So because they had six good kings, they, they last a little bit longer. And so Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586, in the south and takes them. But in 722, the north goes. And so that's a little history lesson too. Just pray us through. We'll get through this together. All right. And and so uh, that's the problem. And and so one one month out of the year, uh, these guys are supplying. Now, let's take a look at what they have to supply. Verses 20 through 28. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour Two cell phones, sorry, whoops. 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. That guy had an appetite. That's not all for him. You, You figured it out. Verse 24, for he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tipsah to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. Yeah, apparently. Uh, They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses as well. All right, so one was Solomon's executive officers. And thank you for that slide. 
and uh, two was Solomon's governors, the 12 of them, and number three is Solomon's provisions and Israel's peace. All right, so now we see kind of a glimmer of what scholars call uh, the golden age of Israel, but only temporarily. You get a little glimpse of this uh, for 40 years here. Israel is now the superpower of the region. Uh, Plenty of pleasure, uh, holidays, recreation. There's peace on every side. Uh, God has subjugated the nations, are paying tribute to Israel. Plenty of food, plenty of provisions, all of this under a very wise king. This is a picture, scholars say, of uh, the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth, where he will reign, according to Zechariah 14, Israel will be the superpower of the world. And in that millennial kingdom, which is populated by the survivors of the tribulation, uh, ruled over by the church and Jesus Christ uh, for 1,000 years, where the earth will be restored to Garden of Eden uh, type characteristics, and we will reign and rule there with him. But Israel is front and center. The nations will pay tribute to Israel in their uh, humanity. There's humanity. They are still procreating the world. And uh, so just an amazing thought that here's a little picture of what's going to be much on a much grander scale uh, at the end of the age. And so uh, Zechariah 14 talks a lot about that. Uh, in fact, nations that don't come for the, the holy days and acknowledge Israel, uh, they won't have rain, Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, so it's just an amazing little picture of Israel uh, and her role uh, in, the, in the years to come. Um, now, Israel's come a long way here. You see this wonderful prosperity. It's only going to last for 40 years. Uh, but wow, from one old man who is 99, who was past the age, and also his wife, who was not only past the age, but she was infertile to begin with. And so from those two, the Lord said, uh, Abraham, walk with me. I'm going to make you into a nation, and you won't be able to look up at the stars. That's how many people are going to be related to you. And this is a guy who couldn't have kids, right? And so here you see a little bit of the fulfillment of that because you see Israel being described as countless millions, like the, the sea, uh, the sand of the seashore. Now, you know, I just was thinking, even when it seems impossible, God makes a promise, and there are a lot of promises in the word, that you'll overcome, that he who's born of God overcomes the world, and that we will reign and rule with Christ and live forever. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall never be put to shame. Sometimes those promises just seem really impossible, but here we see God always keeps his uh, promises. Now, so Solomon's daily provisions are listed there. Uh, uh, plenty of bread, right? So those, a core is equal to a homer. Now, doesn't that help you out a lot? I know it cleared up a lot for me. A homer is like a donkey load. That helps, right? Uh, well, somebody said it's like a 55-gallon drum, all right? And so there were 90 of those 
filled with meal and flour a day, enough to make 28,000 pounds of bread to feed four to 5,000 people like a small city. Now, if you think that Israel probably had a population of five million at the time, because remember when David uh, fell and sinned and counted the people, we found out that there were 1.3 fighting men, which would approximate the population at five million. And so uh, it makes sense that there's a small little town of people required to keep things going. And so uh, every day, that kind of provision, and where was that all coming from? One of the 12 in the north, right? Not from Judah. Uh, So Israel's got this piece, and then there's this wonderful line there, verse 25, each man sat down under his own vine and fig tree. This is kind of code for the millennial reign when Israel will be enjoying this, this wonderful messianic promise Micah 4 and verse uh, 4, Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 10 uh, talk about this wonderful time. Here's what it means when he says every man sat under his own fig tree and their own vine. It's that every Israelite had a place to call home. Everybody had a place to be, a safe place. Uh, Everybody, I mean, it's like the American dream, that line, the fig tree and the vine. Uh, Everybody owned their own home and had a white picket fence and enjoyed the American dream. That's the idea. And by the way, this whole big lavish scene, uh, it's not of opulence. It's of prosperity. It's of organizing the kingdom the way God wanted it to be, and he blessed them. And uh, so there's no sinning here with all this luxury. It's really the good hand of the Lord. It really just means there was a complete absent, uh, absence of any threat or warfare and economic uh, or economic disruption of any kind. Even the stalls of uh, 4,000 stalls, you could see them there at Megiddo, which I saw on my first trip to Israel. We stopped and saw those stalls, uh, 12,000 horses. So he was a man of peace, but he, he was prepared if he had to be. Now, you, you look at that and say, man, I'm kind of envious of that kind of blessing. Well, that kind of blessing is coming to us. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new, then said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost the springs of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my my son. Do not be afraid, Jesus said. He said, little flock, 
for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And one day, you will have this kind of inheritance and this kind of peace. We get glimpses of where we're headed, you know, uh, when it's a storm outside and you're, you're nestled by the fire and you're reading a good book and suddenly you just feel this, this incredible peace or you're in the embrace of somebody you really love and just all is well, you know, or you're at grandma's house. Like my, I grew up in New England with a grandma that just had the most beautiful place of refuge and uh, just a loving and wonderful, happy place. And, and I just remember sitting in the porch in the screened-in porch and, and my parents wouldn't fight when we went to my grandma's house and there was no alcohol and there was, it was so safe and so loving and there was food everywhere and there was, everybody was laughing all the time. And I remember just sitting out on the porch and, and listening to the crickets and rocking in this chair, and I was just probably in sixth or seventh grade, and just feeling this overwhelming sense of wellness and safety and love and security. That's where we're headed. Not, not for a few years, but for eternity. That is our hope, that is our legacy, that's the, the thing that God has given us. And you wanna talk about bread, enough bread? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Anybody who eats of, of me and what I have will, will live forever and never hunger or thirst. And so that's kind of the idea here that we have G, uh, Solomon's greater son, Jesus, living by his spirit in our hearts. So let's finish up. There's just one paragraph here. God, verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than He-Man. That's hard to believe. Calcol or Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Man, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. We have most of them. And his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of, the, out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And so the last point, uh, we've had Solomon's admin team, Solomon's governors, Solomon's provisions, and now Solomon's wisdom. So Solomon, quite the scholar, of course, he asked God for wisdom, and he said, hey, Solomon, there'll be never anybody as smart as you no rivals. Can you imagine being the wisest person on earth? That's an amazing thing. Uh, there were four other famous thinkers, apparently. Ethan, Ethan wrote Psalm 89, and He-Man there, he wrote Psalm 88, but the other two we don't have know anything about. Uh, but, but what a world of difference between David and Solomon. David was all heart. 
He loved the Lord, and he's known and blessed for his intimacy and trust and relationship with God. Solomon is known kind of as a, a lecturer. He, he is a, a wise man, but he's not known for his devotion or heart or his godliness toward God. And because of that, in 40 years, he's going to have a decline because it's not all about your head. It's about your heart and how you relate to the Lord. And, and you know what's really sad? It's sad that somebody who could be like a scientist and be so smart uh, cannot apply some of the wisdom that God had given him. Here's what Warren Wiersbe said as we wrap up tonight. Peace and prosperity reigned while Solomon was king, but no matter how successful things appeared to citizens and visitors, all was not well in the kingdom of Solomon's heart. Until the dedication of the temple, it seems Solomon walked with the Lord, but Alexander White expressed it vividly when he writes that the secret worm was gnawing all the time in the royal staff upon which Solomon leaned. The wisdom God gave him wasn't always and completely applied and he began to be seduced by the love of pleasure and the love of women. And so in our own hearts, the greater than Solomon, Solomon's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, it says that Christ has become our wisdom. And to know that uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says that that. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we have at our beck and call the wisdom of Christ in our hearts for any predicament or situation you find yourself in. You have wisdom to live well, wisdom to love well, wisdom to know how to finish well. Solomon finished poorly worshiping other gods. That's not very smart. You can be very smart and do very dumb things unless you have the reverence of the Lord and the love of Jesus in your heart. Uh, Wisdom. Getting along with, with problem people. Wisdom. Making the best out of relationships that have gone bad. Wisdom. For situations when you feel like you're over your head. Wisdom for financial puzzles and spiritual problems, for figuring our own minds and hearts out and finding our place in the world and all our career choices and dilemmas. James chapter 1, verse 15 says, got wisdom? If you don't have wisdom, ask God. And this is my favorite part of the verse. He says, he'll give you wisdom just for the asking without finding fault. He he won't qualify you. He He won't say, okay, let me see. You want wisdom? Let me check out how you've been living. Or let me see if you qualify to receive this gift of wisdom. He says, no, God will just give you wisdom when you ask for it. If we really believe that, we'd have bright hope right now for everything you face You have the wisdom of Christ waiting for you just to ask with open and honest hearts and a willingness to apply that wisdom that he gives. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for the privilege of knowing God as our Father. We thank you for this wonderful example of a man who used wisdom, Lord, to advance the cause of God and Israel on this earth, and also to learn from uh, the poor application of that wisdom toward the end of his life where he didn't apply that understanding to his heart and life. Help us, Lord, to not just be knowledgeable or listeners, but doers of the word, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we pray that now you would dismiss us in your peace and fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us, dear Lord, to put into practice the lessons in this chapter, to do things your way, to obey, to be blessed. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.